Well, good morning, Harvest Brantford. <laughs> it is uh, such a joy for me to be here. Uh, this is my first time uh, out here. And uh, as, we said, as, as I said on the video earlier, um, I'm coming from Hope Church, Toronto West. It was really refreshing as we came to uh, just see some trees as we started to come and not, and not buildings. Um, it's, it's really a deep joy to be visiting Harvest Brantford today. Uh, I think uh, I know some of your elders and, and leaders a little bit better than some of you, although I'm hoping to get to know you a little bit more. I'm so thankful for the godliness and humility of your leaders. I, uh, we had a chance to launch our elders around the same time as this church, and just to see the humility, the love, but just the deep shepherd's heart that they had for this church was such a joy. There were moments in the elders' room where I would just look at these men in tears, praying uh, over the struggles uh, uh, and the afflictions of the church with tears in their eyes. And I just thought, man, I, we are so, this church is so, so privileged to have these men leading them. And so I am so thankful to join you today. Um, we find ourselves sort of mid to late August, and fall is coming soon. It kind of crept up on me, but if, if perhaps you might be like me, you're in that same spot. You know, for us, we're getting letters from the kids' school. We're finding out who their teachers are, what they have to bring, and we're starting to picture what life would be like as we start to start the fall soon. And, you know, our kids are growing up. My kids share a room. Our youngest is going into kindergarten. Our, our oldest, she's going into grade two. And I have got, I've got these dreams. We don't have a lot of space because we're in Toronto. And we're trying to find half the room. And we, I, I have this, these dreams of trying to turn it into this perfect combination of playroom and study room all at the same time. I think I've been watching too much uh, TV and HGTV. So then I'm looking at these like, things like Ikea catalogs, and I'm thinking, ooh, I see it now. Okay, maybe this table would work, and that storage solution, so the toys aren't everywhere, and this shelving solution, and these shelves, so that it's, it's right in access, you know, for them, right by their books, so that they become geniuses. And soon enough, I find that I'm shopping online for them. I'm going around, in re and in real physical life, I'm, I'm really looking for this vision of what life could look like. I'm looking for the vision of the good life. And ultimately, if you are like me, in this time, in this, in this time you could be treasure hunting like me. Because that's really what it is, treasure hunting. I keep telling myself that if I just find it, it's out there to be found. And if I just find it, I can make it all find and fall into place. I'm treasure hunting. Like a pirate sailing the seas without a treasure map, I'm hunting for treasure that would really enrich and fulfill my life. Get the kids' room right. That's one step towards getting the house right, and that's one more step towards getting life right. You know, we're treasure hunters too. We just sail the seas of Amazon and Google looking for treasure. Now, that perhaps doesn't just define our shopping habits. I believe it defines our culture as well. We find ourselves searching and looking for treasure that satisfies. But what if, what if God actually has true treasure for us? And what if it's even more mysterious, more glorious than any hidden treasure story you've ever heard? And what if God has a treasure map for you and me? A map that said, this is the way to the greatest treasure that has ever been known, ever been revealed, ever been shown. You don't have to shop online for it. You don't have to scrape your way up the corporate ladder for it. It's there. You come to me and you find it. Today we're going to look at a passage that serves as a treasure map for our lives. 
The passage is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. Can you just turn there with me? Colossians 1, 27 to 29. And as you're turning there, I want to give us a preview of what we're going to go over. This passage has one big message to it. One big message. And the message is this. Christ in us is the ultimate glorious unearthed treasure. So we proclaim all of him. Let me say that again. Christ in us is the ultimate glorious unearthed treasure. So we proclaim all of him. So now as we're in the text, let's unroll the treasure map together. I want to give you a bit of context as it's open to you. Colossians is a prison epistle. It means that Paul wrote the, the epistle from prison. And being in prison, you'd expect the tone of Colossians to be really sad and pessimistic and down. But it doesn't have that tone. He's talking in this passage like he's found a hidden treasure, like he's found a secret that he's found something. And before we get to our main text, I just want you to turn your eyes to the verses before in verse 24 to 26. And we're just going to read those verses one verse at a time to set the stage, because context is king. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. Let's stop there. Let's follow along. Verse 24, Paul's saying that he's suffering, but in the midst of suffering, he's still rejoicing. Why is that? Well, it says in this verse, he's doing it for the church. He does it so that the church doesn't have to suffer. Right away, you see the strength of Paul, but you, you want to ask, what strength? Man, where does that possibly come from? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 25. He keeps going. He says, the church is of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Look at the words there, like, of which it became a minister or the stewardship from God. You read this verse and you get new information that he has a calling. Paul has a mission. It's a stewardship that was given to him. It was ministry that was given to him. He's been entrusted with mission. And at this point in time, you might think, maybe that's the secret. Maps, maybe that's the secret to it all. Maybe that's how he gets through suffering. He's got mission and ministry. Maybe that's what you need. Ah, I see. Paul is just one of those super Christians who has a great appreciation of God's word. Like a wine expert, how he, like a wine expert loves wine. Paul just loves God's word. And he's a super Christian, right? That's the secret. He's just like one of those super Christians I read about in books, like Hudson Taylor or William Carey. He's just got this incredible resolve. That's his secret. That's how he gets through suffering, right? Because of mission and ministry. That's the thing that's missing. It must be. That's what verse 25 says, doesn't it? Now, if the passage stops here, you might be able to say that. But the, the, the interesting is this. As you continue to read the passage, he stops talking about mission and ministry. But do you know he starts talking about mystery? Mystery. That little bit at the end of verse 25 where he says, to make the word of God fully known, he spends almost the rest of the passage talking about the word of God. See, read verse 25 uh, again. It says, according to the uh, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Watch verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Do you see this? Paul here is not driven by how big the job is. He's driven by how big the message is. He's saying, he's not saying, I'm a herald, and that job is really important. He's saying, I'm a herald, and that message is really important. 
He spends the rest of the passage talking not about his mission and not about his ministry. He spends the rest of the passage talking about the mystery that is the word of God. You see, for a lot of us, I love that word mystery. Because it shows us that the word of God isn't just some tame pedestrian word. You know, sometimes we tend to look at God's word like we look at vitamins. You know, it's a bottle of good, ancient, nice platitudes and adages, and you just pop it in your mouth every time you need a spiritual pick-me-up. But you know what? Vitamins aren't something to stop and look at. Like, I've never walked uh, in a grocery store and just stopped at the vitamins and be like, oh, vitamins. It's not something you gaze at, you're in awe of. You know, I love going to Costco because they always have these displays. They have displays of blenders and crazy stuff like that, but they never have displays for vitamins. Oftentimes, we treat God's word like that. Something that's good for health, but not something to stop and look at. But that's not how Paul treats it. He sees God's word totally different. It's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Mystery, curious, something you gaze at. It was hidden, and it's now been revealed. You know what? Ultimately, later on, the, this passage talks about how the Bible and the God's word is like undiscovered, unearthed treasure. If you just peer down, look at your text, chapter 2, verse 3. It, it describes Christ in this. It says, in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Treasure, treasure. It's not a vitamin. It's a hidden treasure that you stumble on. You know, in preparing for this message, I got to read a whole bunch of different stories of people finding hidden treasure. Sometimes they'll be going on a walk and they just stumble on it and they discover it's been buried there for 100, for 100 years. It's worth so much. But what's always been so interesting is their reaction to that. They, they would use words like, I was freaking out, I was shaking, and I was hugging the person beside me. I couldn't sleep all night. Because that's what finding hidden treasure does to you. That's what happens when you stumble on hidden treasure. It totally rocks you and changes you. You can't stay the same. It will shake you. Now imagine this. Imagine you stumbled upon a hidden buried treasure box, and it has this inscription on it. It says, the, context of this, the contents of this box are a divine gift. They contain the very words of God, parts of God's word hidden for ages and generations, but now it's uncovered to be re revealed fully to the world. In opening this box, you will find the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. What would your reaction be? i tell you what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be to just pass by. It wouldn't be to bury it up again. With trepidation and trembling hands, you would open that up. You'd be freaking out. You'd be shaking. Perhaps you wouldn't be able to sleep. With a deep sense of wonder, adventure, and curiosity, you're going to open that box. And imagine you see a letter in that box. You would open the letter. And do you know what it would sound a lot like? Verse 27. Are you ready? Verse 27. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. You see that word again, mystery? Look how amazed Paul is. He's opened the box. He's peering into the mystery. He's amazed. And that's the way he describes it. Look at every little ver word in this verse. See, the verse doesn't just say, to the saints, God chose to make known the mystery. He says that the mystery has glory to it, glory of this mystery. He's amazed at the beauty. It's awe-inspiring. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say to the saints God chose to, to make known the glory of this mystery. He says that the glory has richness. The riches of the glory of this mystery. 
The riches of the glory of this mystery. It's not just glorious, it's richly glorious. And if you thought he would stop there, he doesn't. He describes it one more notch up. That's not all. He says, this verse says that God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of the mystery. See, the glories of this mystery, they're not just rich, they're greatly rich. They're rich, rich. How great, how rich, how glorious, how marvelous, how wonderful. So richly glorious that God isn't just issuing a subtle memo. It's not a little email that hits your inbox. It's not a little footnote. It says in verse 27, God chose to make it known. He declared it. He announced it. This is the greatest keynote ever. This is better than any iPhone announcement ever. He's way better than Steve Jobs. He knows how great it is, and he's building it up how, about how greatly, richly glorious this mystery, and it's about to be unveiled. And at this point, you're reading, and you just want to say, what is it? What is, the, what is the mystery that is so glorious, so great, and so rich? Show me. Unveil it to me. I'm ready. Pull the curtain. And look at the verse 27, the end. This is what the mystery is. He's building to this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know what the thing you've been looking for all your life? Do you know what the thing is that you've been treasure hunting for? This is it. This is it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our foundational big truths for this morning. And our first point, number one, the ultimate unearthed treasure is Christ in you Christ in you. This mystery that Paul's willing to suffer and die for is Christ in us, the secret hidden but now revealed. Now you might look at that and you say, well, Christ in us, that's a little bit trivial, isn't it? Is that it? Paul, you've built it up, like, like you've built it and built it and built it, and finally you've pulled the curtain, and all it is is Christ in us. Isn't that like just the ABCs of the Christian faith? Like I grew up in church, and I was thinking, I was saying that song about how the joy, joy, joy is down in my heart, and the love of Jesus is down in my heart. Like, isn't this, isn't this the ABCs? No. Because Christ in you is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. According to God's word, Christ in us is the A to Zs. It's not trivial. It's earth-shattering. But we've just become dull of hearing. See, Christ in us gives us everything for the past, present, and future. As we look at these verses, we'll see what, he, what it gives us in the past, present, and future. And let's look, at the, let's look at those. Let's start with the present. Number one, Christ in us gives us awesome reality for the present. Awesome reality for the present. Look at just that phrase, Christ is in you. Get in the mind of Paul as he's writing this epistle. Why is he stunned? Why is he so stunned about Christ in you? Well, the reason is because if you look back a little bit, he just wrote about who Christ is. And would you just, would you turn your page back or swipe your page back if you're reading it on your, uh, on your phones and take a look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He, Paul says this. It's a famous, famous passage. He says this, Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He just spent half a chapter talking about how great God is. And one of my favorite verses in this passage is the verse that says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you know what the picture comes to mind when I think of Christ being in us? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and then that was, dwells in us. Imagine trying to take all the waters of all the sea and trying to put it in a little water bottle. That's the scale that we're talking about. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who made everything, he lives in you. That's Paul's groundbreaking truth. Do you know the God who existed before time? That God lives in you by faith. You know the God who created every single thing from heaven to earth? That God lives in you. You know the God who rules over every throne, every ruler, every dominion, over every, every authority? That God lives in you. You know the God who holds every atom together moment by moment by moment? That God lives in you. See, that God wasn't just Emmanuel, God with us. He is God in us. And it is amazing truth. It's a whole other level. See, it's simply stunning. First, all the fullness of God chooses to dwell in human flesh in the incarnation. That's pretty amazing. But it goes beyond that. Then all the fullness of God chooses, Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of God dwells, he lives in you by faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing, amazing truth. But that's not all. See, the doctrine of the union of Christ goes both ways. It's not just that Christ is in us. It means that we're in Christ. And what does that mean? It means that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work at the cross as payment for our sins, we are united to him and to all of his works that are credited to us. See, Christ was crucified and buried. Your old, corrupted, sinful self was crucified and buried with him. When Christ died, old, sinful Andrew died as well. Christ was raised to life. Our new created self was raised with him to newness of life. When Christ was raised, new Andrew was born as well. And this is the story for each one of us by faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because all because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the debt was paid. How could God dwell in such sinful people? Because he paid the debt for our sin, making, making the way for him to dwell. He forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood us against us with his legal demands. This he, nailed, uh, he laid aside, nailing it to the cross. So now we stand dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, fit to be indwelled, fit to be dwelled by the one who created the universe. That is our reality. Is that it? Yes, and it's everything. You are a living, walking carrier of God. To those in the room who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who follow him as Lord and Savior, this is your reality. Does it strike you? And is it beautiful to your soul? You might be sitting here as someone who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And this reality is not yours, but it can be. It can be simply by putting your faith in the finished work of Christ at the cross. By looking at him and declaring and confessing, I am deeply sinful. I stand condemned. I owe a debt that I can never, ever pay. But thank God. God, that Jesus was perfect in every way and paid the debt, my debt at the cross, pays the penalty of my place, and I put my trust in him and him alone for the payment of that debt. 
That's the awesome reality for the present. Christ in you. You are a living, walking carrier of God. Look, I bet if you had a parasite, you would know it. But you have something even greater and the opposite of that. You are a carrier, living carrier of Jesus Christ, Christ in you. So Christ in us gives us an awesome reality for the present. Number two, Christ in us gives us an inheritance for the future. It's not just a present reality, it's a future reality as well. Look at verse 27 again. It says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. See, glory in this verse, as in many places in the New Testament, refers to the future glory of heaven. See, Paul isn't just looking at present realities, he's looking to future riches. Earlier in Colossians 1 verse 5, he refers to the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope, future, hope in heaven. Later on in Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 to 4, it's on the screen, he writes this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Glory, that's that word again. He says that one day you will be where Christ is in the throne room of God. In Ephesians, Paul calls this our inheritance. And it's not just any inheritance. It is a glorious inheritance of the saints. And that's our future, reality, our future inheritance. Do you realize that you are an heir? The mystery of Christ is that he's made you an heir. The amazing thing is that as God dwells in our measly bodies, now we add on another truth. And this new truth is this. We are sons and daughters of the king. You are an heir. This is the real life fairy tale. When you watch all the fairy tales about the princess who, who, who suddenly discovers, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. I'm a, I'm, I'm a princess. I'm actually of royal lineage. Do you know why that speaks to you? Because that's, because that's our story. You really are a daughter of the king. You really are a son of the king. And you'll go to him one day. You have an inheritance waiting. Followers of Jesus Christ, are you walking through life like a prince or a pauper? Because the amazing story of the gospel is that you deserve to be a pauper, but Jesus Christ has made you into a prince. It's simply stunning. You are a walking, living carrier of the Son of God. And that means that you have royal heritage and an imperishable inheritance. Christ in us gives us an amazing reality for the present and inheritance for the future. But it doesn't just look at the present. It doesn't just look at the future. It also gives us perspective for the past. That's our third little point. Christ in us gives us perspective for the past. I'm going to read verse 27 again. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you remember earlier on, and when it talked about the mystery, it talked about how the mystery was hidden for ages and generations, and now it's revealed. And just a little tip, every time the New Testament talks about the mystery, um, it's almost always uh, appearing to indicate some Old Testament prophecy that's beginning to be fulfilled in some unexpected way. Paul uses it multiple times in his letters. Old Testament prophecy beginning to be fulfilled in an unexpected way. Here's, here's the rub. The reality of Christ in us is this glorious, unexpected reality that the prophets long to see. See, I don't know about you, but I've been around um, the, the gospel for a while. I, I know it. I was raised in a Christian home. And sometimes it's easy to not be surprised by these things. But, you know, 
In Ezekiel, when he prophesied in, verse, in chapter Ezekiel 36, verse 27, that he would give us, a, that God would come and give us a new heart and he would put a new spirit in us, Ezekiel himself probably never would have seen this coming. And while it doesn't surprise us, if he were here standing beside me, it would probably surprise him. See, he saw a silhouette of it, but he didn't see it in full. If, if, he, if he was right here, he would probably say, man, I wish I lived in the time you're living in now. I wish I could see the things you see now. I wish I could hear the things you hear. See, as Christ himself said this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16 to 7, I think it's on the screen, it says this, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. What perspective. Do you realize how blessed your eyes are? Do you realize how blessed your ears are? He lives in you. You have a certain hope for glory, and that strikes us and gives us perspective for the past. It makes you say things like, I can't believe, I can't believe the time I live in. I I read this stat the other day. You know the surgeons have only been washing their hands for 160 years? That is crazy. Like, we're in the 2000s, which means that if you were dropped in history between zero and now, there's a really high chance you would have been born in a time where surgeons don't wash their hands. See, when you apprehend truth like that, you say, I cannot believe I live in this time. I can't believe that God God has put me in this place. Your eyes see what the prophets long to see. Your ears hear what the prophets long to hear. Savor that. Say, I cannot believe I'm here. Do not waste it. Do not waste it. Savor it. Gaze at it. Behold it. Don't waste it. That's what Paul's saying. So Christ in us gives us an amazing reality for the present, inheritance for the future, and perspective for the past. The amazing thing is this. We could probably just kind of, like, you know, uh, um, go like this and say, all right, well, that's great. That's great new, new knowledge and just move on. But to Paul, he, he can't just stop there. Because he's saying, if this truth is as glorious as I think it is, it will totally change us. He says later on in Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Sound familiar? And then this is what his next verse is. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul, he says, this truth of of Christ in us, it cannot stay inert. It cannot stay in one place. It It must progress. It must go beyond. It must change my life. We don't own our lives anymore. We live by faith. So as we continue reading this passage, we find out what this looks like. What does that look like? What does a life lived by faith look like? The passage tells us uh, this. Uh, This is our second big point, that uh, that, that our ultimate mission is to toil in proclaiming Christ. If our first point was the ultimate unearthed treasure is Christ in us, it leads to our second point. Our ultimate mission is to toil in proclaiming Christ Let's continue in verse 28 of our text. Verse 28 continues. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim is one of my favorite lines in this whole text. And it's the, it's the title of the sermon after he goes through all of the beautiful reality of what Christ in us means for us in the past, the present, and the future, he points at Christ and he says, that's the one we proclaim. 
Him we proclaim. It totally changes everything. We have blessed eyes and blessed ears, so therefore, Him we proclaim. We look forward to a future inheritance and a reality, therefore, Him we proclaim. We are walker, walking carriers of the Son of God, therefore, Him we proclaim. Paul says, I can't help but speak of Christ. I, it's true, I finally found this hidden treasure, and the God of the universe lives in me, but I can't keep it in. I can't sit down and kick my feet up and just ride it out for the rest of the days. I must proclaim Christ because Christ dwelling inside of me has to lead to my breath coming outside and proclaiming Christ. That's Paul's conviction. And if, you know what, if I'm honest, that's not always my conviction. If, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm prone to more complacency than conviction. And we're so entranced by the counterfeit treasures of the world that we'd rather proclaim about them, tweet about them, post about them, chat about those things than the ultimate treasure of Christ in us. And the times we discover Christ in us, sometimes we just want to keep it to ourselves. But that's not what Paul does at all. He says, Christ, we proclaim. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, what could that possibly look like? Because help me get started. Well, the amazing thing is that Paul actually does help you get started. He answers the question, what does that proclamation look like? And this verse is packed with rich truth about the nature of our proclamation. The nature of our proclamation. It answers all the questions. First, it answers the what question. The what. What are we, what are we called to do? Warning and teaching in all wisdom. What? Warning and teaching in all wisdom. Verse 28 again, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. See, the Great Commission cannot stop with a superficial preaching of the saving message of Christ to the world. Mere converts are not enough. And that's why each of the words proclaim, warning, and teaching are used in the present tense. It's the present tense. The work is not done. We're not just aiming for converts. We're working to warn and teach in the present tense. Now, how does that work? The warning and teaching, they're amazing words. See, teaching is instructive, formative speech. It says, go there and do this. That's teaching. But warning is an admonishing or corrective speech. It says, don't go there, don't do this. But the amazing thing is that they're both expressions of love. And Paul likens this to the love of a father. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, it reads this. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 and 12. He says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's love. When you warn and teach like a father, it's love. I have three little kids. I'm six, four, and two. Oh, the two-year-old, the boy, whew, man, he gives me a run for my money. But warning and teaching in my life is an act of love. See, war warning says things like, don't run across the road. And teaching says something like, okay, before you cross the road, look left, and then look right, and look left again. Both are crucial. Teaching is love. Warning is love. They're both deeply loving. Loving. Question. Do you love enough to both warn and teach? I mean, we're Canadians, so we don't really want to be that involved in other people's business. We don't feel like it's our place. We don't, we'd rather keep it close to the chest than actually say it out. But remember, you're a Christian first, so warn and teach. It's an act of love. Get involved in the lives of those around you. It is an act of love. Get involved. You have to. Warn and teach in all wisdom. Warn and teach in all wisdom. It's a command. So you might be saying, well, that's good for Paul to be doing, right? 
Um, but I'm not Paul. Is that really my mission too? Well, let, read verse 28 again. And I'm going to stress a, a, a few different words. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The, this is the second nature of our proclamation. Who? This verse answers the who question. Everyone. Everyone. Did you know that, yeah, Paul shifts in his, in his language. He used to be saying, I, 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 and now he says, we. What's the implication? The implication is that the proclamation of Jesus Christ is for all Christians. In fact, he says that in Colossians 3.16 later. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. He's saying to the whole church in Colossae, I need you to be teaching and admonishing one another. So we all do it. But here's another observation. The word everyone is repeated again and again and again. It's Christ is to be proclaimed to everyone. That's every person you encounter. And when you combine those two, you get this massive truth. Christ must be proclaimed by all Christians to all people. Christ must be proclaimed by all Christians to all people. It's the call for all Christians to get past deep, superficial relationships. It means you can't just hand out gospel tracts. And we have to speak and do it wisely. See, it's a truth that really pulls out the, the complacency in proclaiming Christ. Because really, let's be honest, we can find so many objections to obeying God's word here. You know, we could say, ah, I'm not a super Christian. Someone else can proclaim Christ. No, Christ must be proclaimed by all Christians. You might say, I don't want to proclaim Christ to that guy. He's just weird and socially awkward. And when we talk, there are these gaps, and I just don't know what to say. It's, ah, no. Christ has to be proclaimed to all people. Oh, you know what? I'll just go to a small group, but I haven't really prepared to point others to Christ through God's word. No, no. We're called to teach one another. We might say, I'm good with teaching, but having the hard talk is just uncomfortable, so I'm just going to keep my relationships at arm's length. No, you have to warn one another. You have to go deep. And for the more vocal types, you might say, I'm okay with confrontation, and so I've got no problems calling people out and telling it like it is. Even there, no. Because you're called to teach and warn in all wisdom. It means that you have to be slow to speak. It means you have to give counsel that fits the occasion. It means you have to build up. It means gentleness. Warning and teaching in all wisdom. That's the who question. The what question, we warn and teach in all wisdom. The who to everyone. And, what, and finally, and later on, this text gets to the why question. Why? What in the end is the end goal of all this that makes it worthwhile? Here's the why. Maturity. Third little point here. The nature of our proclamation. Why is maturity? Verse 28 again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What's the payoff? What's the goal? What's the light at the end of the tunnel? Verse 28 says this. It is the pleasure and the privilege of presenting to, to Christ mature believers, not spiritual babies. It's rejoicing when those around us go from milk to solid food. It's the same type of joy that a parent has when he sees his toddler take his first steps. Uh, the end goal is maturity, a wholehearted, undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong journey until Christ returns or calls us home. Uh, can, can I challenge us a little bit? See, if you're a young parent like me, you, you get to see this, this joy all the time. It's our joy to see our children grow and mature. And my oldest just started killing the monkey bars. She's a monkey now, officially. And my second just started riding a bike without training wheels. It's pretty awesome. And, I, and, and as a parent, I have this zeal and excitement. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're maturing. This is an amazing thing. I'm, I'm taking pictures. I'm sharing it with my, uh, with my mom. 
But for some reason, in the spiritual equivalent, when, we're starting to, when, we, when it comes to the maturity of believers around us, we don't have the same excitement. We don't have the same, go, go, ride the bike without, without training wheels. We don't say, go, go, get on the monkey bars. Why are we not doing that when it comes to spiritual maturation? But that's what Paul is calling us to. And like parenting, it is a really tough job, and it's lifelong, but oh, how worth it it is. That's the why that we may present everyone mature in Jesus Christ. What? Warning and teaching with all wisdom. Who? Everyone. Why? Maturity. This verse calls us to go deep with one another, wide with everyone, and go long until we die. Deep with one another wide with everyone, and long until we die. And man, that seems so difficult, almost impossible. And you know what the great truth is? In your strength it is. <laughs> it sounds pessimistic, but keep reading. Because the answer to this question, how can this be done? How is this possible is this. We toil with his energy. The how question, we toil with his energy. Final verse, verse 29. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In this verse, Paul acknowledges right out of the gate, yeah, this is hard work. Can I be honest with you? The first time I discovered this verse, I, I think I was a small group leader, and I was pouring out as much as I could, and I was so tired, and I felt really burnt, and I was just like, I don't know how I can go on a little bit more. And this verse was such comfort to me, because it came and it said, you know what? It's supposed to be toil. It's toil. And, and not just that, it's the word struggle. It's a struggle. Sometimes I tell my, my group leaders, you know, if it's, if it's not hard, you're, I don't think you're doing it right. Because it's a struggle. It's a toil. The, word, the original Greek word struggle was typically used to describe fighters and wrestlers uh, who are agonizing in wrestling contest. It was agony. It was a fight. Paul had to wrestle to keep proclaiming Christ. There's no rose-tinted glasses here. There's no, okay, go proclaim Christ, and it's going to be awesome. You know, it's just going to happen automatically. You just roll it out, and then disciples will be made, and, then, and people will be matured. It's not. It's brutally realistic. It's going to be a toilsome struggle. It's glorious, but it's toilsome. But here this verse gives us this stunning counterbalance to the toil of proclaiming Christ. And here's the balance. It's on the screen. Here's the balance. We provide the toil, but God provides the power. We provide the toil, but God provides the power. Look at verse 29 to see that balance. You see this? For this I toil, struggling. Oh, precious words. Here we see human effort and exertion. It's our toil. You see that? But keep reading. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here we see God's power. Because of Christ in you, you have this immortal engine running inside of you. You may be providing very meager human manpower, but God is providing the real God power. And he doesn't just give you energy, he works that energy in you. And not only, and not only that, he powerfully works it in you. You see, this is really interesting that I found in my study. In verse 29, these words, energy, power, and works, they all come from this same Greek root and refers to the power of God. And nowhere else in the New Testament are the words combined like this where the power of God is featured three times in this one little phrase. Do you know what that means? 
It means that amidst the toil and struggle of proclaiming Christ, he gives power upon power upon power. Power upon power upon power. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel like you're spending yourself for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ? Do you feel spent? Christ in you gives you power upon power upon power. Maybe you're a small group leader and, and, and you've been doing this for a while and you keep reaching out, but you just see no fruit perhaps uh, and it's just such a struggle and you get so discouraged and you feel so burned and so spent. Christ in you gives you power upon power upon power. Maybe you're, um, you work in kids' ministry at Harvest Kids, um, and you work at Harvest Kids in a portable church, and you're like, man, things always seem to get forgotten or things go wrong, and I'm tired, and it's, it's long and it's toilsome. Christ in you gives you power upon power upon power. Perhaps you're feeling like, man, this city needs the gospel, and, and we're just struggling, and we're trying to gain every little inch for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel to be made known, but it feels like we're just getting little inches. Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. Maybe you're evangelizing your friends at work, but you just keep feeling like you come against wall, against wall, against wall. This verse declares with such conviction, Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. Keep toiling. God provides the power. There's one ultimate mission, and it's to proclaim Jesus Christ. What exactly? To warn and teach with all wisdom. Who exactly? Everyone. Why do we do it for maturity? And how do we ever muster up the strength to do it? Well, we toil with his energy. Loved ones, it's a struggle, but take heart. You have a rich and glorious treasure that's hidden for ages, and it's now made known to you. You don't have to hunt for treasure. You don't have to look out for it. It's in Jesus Christ, in you by faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So go out and proclaim Christ. Go deep with one another. Go wide with everyone. And go long until you die. And just watch. You provide the toil. And God will provide the power.